We're in part two in our story series of the fall of God's rescue team. Last week, we looked at the fall of, of the Israelite kings, how the Israelite kings blatantly disregarded their faith heritage, blatantly disregarded their role of God's people, uh, of king of God's people, and blatantly disregarded their own personal faith. Tonight, we're looking at the other two tribes. Israel were the ten northern tribes, and tonight we're looking at the two southern tribes of Judah. And we're looking at how they turned out a little bit different. And we're going to look at the key principles of why they turned out differently. And uh, the differentiating element, uh, really, differentiating elements can really be seen in the life of King Manasseh. And so uh, that's the background to our passage. Now, if you're a first-time guest or if you're new to Christianity in the Bible and you just heard that introduction, then you might be wondering, is, is this going to be 25 minutes of painful boredom? Let me say not to worry. The gems that are given in this passage are incredibly valuable for everyday life. And uh, so just bear with me as we sift through history and culture to uncover God's way of doing things. And in doing so, we'll find both challenge and encouragement from God himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And although some of the names are foreign, the dates are certainly foreign, the places are foreign, the culture is different, your word is unchanging, and the truth it contains is so relevant to every person in every place in history. So, Lord, speak your truth to us tonight. Help us to hear and apply your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of our reading is, is uh, we're reading most of Second Chronicles 33, but I want to do it in three parts. And so it's, it'll be divided up here in the, in the PowerPoint, but uh, um, if you're following along, and you might want to follow along because we're going to go bit by bit. We're going to read part one, and then I'll give some, some commentary. We'll read part two, give some commentary, read part three, and we'll finish up. So um, that's, how, that's how it'll go. Let's, uh, let's start with chapter three, and we're going to look first at, at uh, one through six. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. How, how's that resume? This is really an amazing story. We're looking at a, a really, really bad guy. In fact, um, he makes, he not only does he do all the evil things of the kings of Israel, but he seems to outdo them. 
And if, if you look at, at some of the, his practices, they're quite atrocious. But look again at, at verse 2. It says, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So, first of all, he looked around and saw what assimilated the, the worship, um, the, the rituals, the practices of the culture around him, whom God specifically said, watch out for. These will lead you astray. He, he followed the detestable practices of the nations. Well, what were some of those practices? It's spelled out a little bit later. It says in verse 3, he rebuilt the high places. And whenever you see um, high places... That almost always means worship of foreign cultic gods. The uh, verse on the welcome screen um, when you walked in was, uh, I look to the mountains, where does my, or to the hills, where does my help come from? And that's a, that's a, a statement of belief. I, I look to the high places. My help doesn't come from the high places. I look to the mountains and to the altars that are set up there. My help doesn't come from those cultic gods, my help comes from Yahweh, the creator of the universe. It says that he built the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. We'll get to Hezekiah in a minute, but he, he's turning his back on his, his uh, religious upbringing. He erected altars to the, to the Baals and made Asherah poles. We talked about that last Sunday. And if you were here last Sunday evening, you know, the Asherah poles um, were, were, were places where this cultic prostitution would take place as, as people would worship Asherah, the goddess of fertility. And people would pay money to sleep with the temple prostitutes or, or, or um, not the temple, but the, the, the Asherah pole uh, prophetesses or, or, prostit- or um, uh, servants. It was a very bad thing. And the worship of the Baals... Equally awful. In fact, this gets spelled out a little bit further. We'll, we'll get to what that meant. It says, uh, in continuing in verse 3, he bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He is going out of his way to worship creation instead of the creator, breaking many of the Ten Commandments in the process. He built altars in the temple in Jerusalem to foreign cultic gods. Can you imagine that? He set up altars in the temple. The very temple where God said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In the temple courts, he built altars to the sun, moon, and stars. Talk about blasphemy. Talk about breaking the first two commandments. And then in verse 6, we see how deep his depravity goes. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. That's in worship of Baal. Sacrifice, he sacrificed his son in hopes to gain victory over his enemies. Murdered his own kids. He practiced sorcery, divination, witchcraft, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Can you see how bad this guy Manasseh was? 
If we continue on in verse 7, he took the carved image he had made, all right, so he made an idol he wasn't supposed to, put it in God's temple, of which God said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of Israelites, feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your forefathers, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them, consecrating all the laws, uh, concerning all the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so they did more evil than the nations that the Lord destroyed before the Israelites. That is a huge, huge statement. Manasseh did more evil than all the evil nations around him. And he was supposed to be the king of God's people. We talked last uh, Sunday evening about the childhood game, King of the Hill, and how just like the kids playing the game, we chronically play an adult version where we want to do what we want, when we want, and however we want to. We don't want anyone telling us how to run our lives, what we can or cannot do. It's a prideful outlook that's really chronic in our lives, and it causes a stereotype, stereotype of Americans from people in other parts of the world to think that, to say that, I've, I've heard this, Americans are so prideful, they're so arrogant. It's because it's we have this king of the hill mentality that's, that's embedded in us. We looked last, last week at the king of the hill mentality, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of the kings of Israel. In this first part of the reading, the king of the hill mentality is shown in overdrive. In full force in Manasseh's life. It's hugely important to to know, first off, that Manasseh comes from a religious, God-loving, God-fearing home. That's pretty important to know. Verse 3 points out that He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. Hezekiah was a key king in turning the people of Judah back towards God. That's why they're exiled and their demise was staved off because people like Hezekiah. In fact, Manasseh's dad Hezekiah was noted as having um, reinstituted public worship life. He got rid of the altars to the cultic gods. He made donations and provisions for the recovery of the temple, for the restoration of the temple, and the operations, the daily operations in the temple. Hezekiah was definitely a God-fearing man. Now, if you read his whole life, you see he had a couple pride hang-ups here and there. But he loved God, and he worked with all his might to turn the people's hearts back to God. He came... Hezekiah was good religious stock. And this is what Manasseh was steeped in. What can we learn from this? Well, just because you're born into a God-fearing family, a religious family, it doesn't mean you can ride on the coattails of your family's faith. The faith of the family is no substitute for personal faith. God will not relate to you based on your parents' faith or spirituality or your sister's or brother's faith but relate to you based on yours 
In religious terms, Manasseh was part of God's covenant people. Knowing Hezekiah and his desire to get back to the, the religious practices, most likely had Manasseh circumcised and was raised as a covenant child. Yet Manasseh did not embrace it. He said, I'm king of my hill, not God or anyone else. Let's read on. Let's look at verse 10, 10 through 12. Then the, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. See, this next chapter in Manasseh's life is judgment. But before judgment, did you catch that verse uh, preceding the judgment? Did you catch that verse in verse 10? What is God's reaction to the chronic, in-your-face defiance and rebellion of Manasseh? turning the people away from God to other negative things. What's God's reaction? Verse 10 says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, calling them back, but they paid no attention. If the Old Testament had a word for whatever, it would be right there. They said whatever to God. God doesn't have to try to woo Manasseh. In fact, he should be appalled. He's sacrificing his sons to fake gods. He's leading, he's erecting altars in God's temple. He's leading the people away from worship of God. If anything, God should be sending lightning bolts after this guy. But what does he do? He gives him second chances. He speaks to Manasseh and his people. It reminds me of a verse in 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, even the Manassehs, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. God is the God of second chances, and before judgment... God gives mercy. He provides an escape route, a way out. But the people don't pay attention. Manasseh stubbornly continues to do his thing. And so God finally says, you don't want anything to do with me, then I'll give you just what you want. And God removes his blessing and his protection from Judah. And the Assyrian army comes and attacks and captures Manasseh and did you read that description? It can't get much worse for old Manasseh. Verse 11 says, The commanders of the Assyrian army take Manasseh prisoner, and they put a hook in his nose. Now, I know this may be uncomfortable, but if you're willing to do this, pinch the inside of your nose. That is, that's some sensitive cartilage. Now, I've been to some... some uh, we, we don't do it here in the United States because PETA would come and shut down the place. But I've been to some countries where they actually put the rings in animals' noses 
I've seen it in Haiti where they put it in, in, in the ring around the nose of oxen or cows, and that's how they lead them. Because no cow or ox is going to tug on that when, when uh, there's a ring around that, that sensitive area. Manasseh is taken prisoner. He's put, that ring is put around him. That's how they lead him. Painful, humiliating. They put brown, bronze shackles around his legs and his hands. He's getting what he deserves, is he not? And then they deport him. They move him away from Jerusalem and exile him to Babylon. This again is another great key that Manasseh's story gives us. And I can sum it up by sharing another New Testament verse. Galatians 6, verse 7. Don't be deceived, Paul tells us. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. I want to slow down here for a minute. For those of us who grew up in the church, we're familiar with these themes, with the themes of sin and judgment. And so this passage makes perfect sense to us. Manasseh rebelled, and so God's judgment rests on him. But for those who might be here who are curious about faith or new to the Bible, the word judgment calls to mind negative vibes and negative stereotypes of American Christians. The word judgment might make someone think that of a Christian with a megahorn on the street square yelling, turn or burn. Or wearing a sandwich board sign saying, flee from God's wrath. So I want to talk about judgment for a second in common terms. Based on Galatians 6, 7. Everybody knows in the physical world, in the natural world, that there's cause and effect. If I had a hammer in my hand and I hit my thumb with it, it's going to hurt. And I'll probably have a big black and blue on my thumbnail. Let's say for those of you in, in, in school, let's say you don't pay attention in class the whole year long. You don't read any of the homework assignments. By the end of the year, you'll be lucky if you can pull off a C- and squeak by. There's cause and effect. Actions have consequences. You drive drunk, you'll get in an accident. If you can't control your anger, your relationships will suffer. Unwise actions have negative consequences. It's a no-brainer. No one's going to argue with that. In the natural, physical world, actions have consequences. Well, if negative actions have negative consequences in, in the physical world, why wouldn't they in the spiritual world? This is spelled out so clearly in Genesis 3. Whenever people say, yeah, God's an old codger trying to keep me from having fun. I'm going to do things my own way. We will reap both the natural, physical consequences of the action but we'll also reap the spiritual consequences. The spiritual consequences usually revolve uh, around God letting us have it our way. If we don't want God in our life, he'll back off. And the creator of life and the sustainer of life will leave you to your own devices, will leave you to yourself. 
And let me tell you from firsthand experience, we make terrible gods. We'll never find peace. We'll never find fulfillment. We'll never find contentment. We'll continually thirst for more and forever have a void where God should be. If you're here tonight and find yourself in that camp, life may be going well or not so well. Either way, you have a nagging discontent. You have a lack or a longing that you just can't put your finger on. Well, if you're in this spot tonight, there is hope for you. Also, if you're experiencing some events that make you want to say, yeah, if I believed in God, I would say he's abandoned me or he's judging me. Well, if you're in that boat tonight, I want to say there's hope for you too. Let's keep reading. Back to Manasseh. Remember the shackles, the ring in the nose? Verse 12 says this. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord. Look at that pronoun. What does that say? His God. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. Now, isn't that amazing? He is doing incredible, incredible evil, dishonoring God is the understatement of a lifetime when it comes to Manasseh. And now he finally finds himself in God's judgment, a prisoner in shackles being led by, a, by his nose. And he comes to his senses. The God of my father. And he calls the Lord his God, and he humbles himself and says, God, I was wrong. I was wrong. And if God was human, he would have said, well, it's a little too late. You're getting what you deserve. I can't believe all the things you have done against me. And now you want to call out to me? If God was human, Manasseh's case would be finished. Judgment would have the last word. But thank God, he's divine. And in an incredible, sacrificial love sort of way, he whispers a word after judgment. The word of grace. Verse 13 continues, So he brought him back to Jerusalem. He's no longer in exile in Babylon anymore. God brings him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. He's reestablished as king. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. He got rid of the foreign gods, removed the image from the temple of the Lord. We're in verse 15 now, yep. As well as the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice in the high places, but only this time they did it to the Lord their God. Incredible, incredible story of God's love and grace. Judgment may seem to be the final word and should be the final word in Manasseh's case. 
And yes, for the kings of Israel, judgment was the final word, but not so for Manasseh. Why? Why is judgment not the final word for Manasseh, but for the other kings of Israel? It's found right in verse 12. He humbled himself greatly before the Lord. He took himself off the hill as king and said, No, God, I am not the king. I am doing things wrong. You are king of my life. And he placed God as king of his hill. And God restores him. Judgment may seem to be the final word, but not for Manasseh. Manasseh cries out to God and waits. And after judgment comes a whisper of grace. So where are you in all of this? Where in this story are you? Are you feeling like you've been missing God? Does life seem to be a pursuit of fulfillment that you can't finish? You thought, oh, you know, when I get married, hey, that's when I'm going to feel it. But it didn't happen. When I have kids, that's when I'm going to feel it. But two, three, four years, the nagging emptiness is still there. The lack of peace, lack of contentment, lack of soul satisfaction is not there. Well, maybe when I get financially stable, maybe when my kids leave and we're empty nesters, maybe when I retire, it's a never-ending pursuit. But there's hope for you. Because before judgment, there's mercy. Maybe you feel like, hey, you're past the mercy stage, you're in judgment. You feel like you might be experiencing judgment, God's judgment for current or past mistakes. This second category has a, a second level to it. And I've encountered this in the church. I've encountered folks who have grown up in the church, have prayed countless prayers, sung countless hymns, but for whatever, for whatever reason, they feel like God's judgment is still on them, that they're too sinful for God's mercy, too out of reach for God's love. They don't deserve it. Well, that last part is right, but that first part isn't. Let me tell you, if you feel like you're too sinful, if you feel like you're too out of reach for God's love, look at Manasseh. Have you killed your sons? Have you erected altars in the church? Have you tried to draw away from God's people away from him? I doubt it. But even if you had, you're still not out of God's reach. Because after judgment, if you're willing to humble yourself, is a whisper of grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So let me say, if you're feeling that way, if you're feeling like you're too sinful, you're too far removed from God's grace, you're being like Manasseh and the people. You're holding up your hand to God and saying, whatever. God's grace is sufficient. God is waiting to whisper to you the word after judgment. He's dying to say grace, but if you keep your hand up like this, you're silencing God. You're saying, I know better. And you're going to live and die as king of the hill of your misery. 
don't let that happen. No matter where we're at, let's learn the lessons of Manasseh. That before judgment, there's mercy. There's way out. God is continually calling us to him, to follow him, to reconcile with him, to repent and change our ways. If we can just humble ourselves enough to see it. And judgment might seem like the final word, and it could be the final word if you're not humble enough to turn to God and get off the hill and say, this place is for you, God. Judgment might seem the final word, but it's not. If you can get off that hill and place God as the king of the hill of your life, then you'll experience God's grace and, and restoration. The cross is a visual symbol of the grace that is shown Manasseh. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And by his sacrifice, we are healed. 